Our passage will be uh, Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, through to chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, This is, as I mentioned earlier, a passage that really uh, the last three chapters form a collective whole. And the introduction to all of the details that are going to come in chapter 11 really start from uh, verse 2. And uh, this, this first verse of, verse, um, of chapter 11 uh, finishes this heavenly messenger's introduction toward the uh, vision that he's about to give. So I'm going to read out the passage for us today, Daniel chapter 10, verse 1 through to chapter 11, verse 1. This is God's word. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, As I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel... Alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words." The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen 
him. This is God's word. Some of you might remember the uh, series Men in Black, the movie series Men in Black. And in that uh, series, the idea is that there is this whole world of aliens, this sort of supernatural world that exists. And every now and then that breaks in to the natural realm. And then there are these men in black who have to come and they neuralize people and you stare into this thing and then you forget about the fact that this supernatural world has broken in and people can go off and live their peaceful lives. But in the movie, there are these moments where the supernatural realm uh, breaks in and they have to do a bit of damage control. Now, uh, please don't get me wrong, uh, Daniel 10 is not talking about uh, specifically those aspects, but there's one similarity where Daniel 10, we see uh, the curtains peeled back. We get a behind the scenes look where this spiritual realm breaks in. Now, it's very relevant for our day because the majority of the Western world live in a secular dome where they are effectively neuralized against the spiritual realm. It's non-existent. There is no idea of the transcendent. And the reality is because God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, we can't, that doesn't satisfy people who live in this dome. So it leads people to all sorts of crazy conclusions. But the reality is there is this spiritual realm. And in Daniel 10, uh, as I said, we see the behind the scenes look of this spiritual world of warfare that is tied to all of the physical conflict of Daniel's day and of our day. So for context, we're in the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Remember that the Jewish people have been exiled by the Babylonians. Now the Babylonians are gone. They've been taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. And they will then, in a future time, for Daniel, be taken over by the uh, Greek Empire, led by Alexander the Great, who took over the world. But for this chapter here, we are in about the year 536 BC. Uh, Cyrus has given the decree three years earlier to release the exiles so that they can go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem. So the rebuilding of Jerusalem, specifically the temple, has already been going for about three years. And as we know from the book of Ezra, it doesn't go smoothly early on. Remember, the temple was completely destroyed when the people were exiled. Now their hopes are to rebuild the temple because the temple is the place of God's presence is a sign that God's favor is still for his people. So they've been released by Cyrus. They're trying to rebuild the temple, but they immediately face opposition. There are people in their context who are trying to thwart the attempts of the Jewish people. And it seems like pain upon pain because they've just spent decades in exile. Now they think, great, we can start rebuilding. And immediately they're facing opposition uh, by malicious people who are trying to thwart their attempts. And this is likely why Daniel is mourning. Notice in the first uh, few verses here from verse 2, Daniel is mourning for three weeks. We read that he eats no delicacies, no meat or wine enters into his mouth, nor does he anoint himself. A very dry climate, you needed to anoint yourself 
for, for your skin to kind of uh, survive. So this is him depriving himself of a lot of the luxuries to make life a bit easier. So he is fasting. He is depriving himself. He is mourning for three full weeks. This is uh, very early on a picture of a godly desire from Daniel to press in to the Lord. Straight away, we recognize that the path that God has ordained for followers of him, for followers of Yahweh, followers of Jesus, is the path of self-denial and discipline. There is no following of Jesus without self-denial and without discipline. It's a non-negotiable of the Christian life. And the path of humble self-denial also becomes the path of joy because to truly deny yourself is to become totally immersed in God. And this is part of Daniel's life. This is what we see here in these first few verses, a spiritual discipline, an intentional self-denial in order to seek the Lord on behalf of his people. And it's on the back end of this that Daniel receives this vision. So this is leading us up to this vision that we will see early on in uh, chapter 10 and then also next week through the rest of chapter 11 and 12. As mentioned, these three chapters form a collective whole. We should take chapters 10, 11 and 12 together within the book of Daniel. Chapter 10 is really introducing the themes, the overarching narrative, and then chapter 11 goes into incredible detail. And it's funny that it's become a a passage uh, where really um, people have to either accept that God knows the future (laughs) in incredible detail, or Daniel wasn't written until much later. And it's a time where it's, it's actually a passage where you clearly see God's uh, ability to almost, in a good way, flaunt, to just show how he is able to understand all of the events that we now know as history, yet at that time, written by Daniel, are future-oriented. Much of the details in chapter 11 uh, could also just form a history of the rise and fall of the Babylonian and Greek empires. So these three chapters will be taken Uh, to be taken as a collective. Now in verses four to nine, we have this vision. It's a majestic vision, uh, very similar to the passage that Tobias read out for us in Revelation one. It's a spectacular vision. Daniel sees this man clothed in linen. Linen was the priestly garment. So immediately we should see this vision of a man who is going to intercede as priests were there to intercede between God and the people. There is this vision of a man who's coming to intercede. He has priestly garments. And then in this vision, he's clothed in linen. He has a belt of fine gold from Uphaz, which is likely a location. Uh, Jeremiah 10 mentions this. There is this fine gold or literally the finest of gold from Uphaz around his waist. The body like beryl describes this radiant appearance it's like a gemstone it's basically to say he was glowing he was radiant his face is like lightning eyes like flaming torches arms and legs like burnished bronze this is a a majestic vision and as is often the case in visions like this it's simply beyond articulation daniel just has to describe well it was kind of like this 
It's just like the most awesome vision I've ever seen. And I just had to go face down into the dirt. I was so fearful. Even his words are like the sound of a multitude. If you've ever been outside of a stadium before of 50,000 people, and if you're at a distance and there's this rumbling, if there's a big roar and it uh, sort of gets right into the pit of your stomach, imagine that but unceasing. And these words sound like the sound of a multitude, literally thousands upon thousands. And in verse 7, we see the response. Those around Daniel, these men around Daniel, don't even see the vision and yet they are trembling. They just flee like scared cats, lest they catch sight of this man. And Daniel is likewise fearing for his life. In verse 8, he says, My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. This is a description of utter terror. Remember, Daniel is likely in his 80s. So he's probably not going to be able to flee like the other people. He's an old man at this time. His only hope is to just go face into the dirt and just be paralyzed with fear. So who is this person? Who is this figure that we read about here? Some uh, view it as a Christophany, which is basically a fancy way of saying it's Jesus before his uh, earthly ministry, or before his incarnation. It's, an, it's a divine appearance of the second person of the Trinity of Jesus who is here. And the reason why many people think that is because of the passage that Tobias read out in Revelation chapter 1 describes many of the similarities. So I'm just going to read over this again in Revelation 1, just verses 12 to 16. This is where John, the apostle, is on the island Patmos and he is confronted by the risen Christ. He turns and he sees the voice in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. There are a lot of similarities. In fact, the vision in Revelation 1 actually takes other um, descriptions, think of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 of the white hair, other descriptions of just the divine of the glory of God. So this could be the case, but the only issue if we say that this is Jesus, this is a Christophany, is that we would then have to say that the person in verse 10 changes. So notice that Daniel gets this vision from verses 4 to 9, and then in verse 10, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. This person starts to speak to him. And then this person goes on to say, I was held up and I needed someone to help me. So there's a few issues if we say that it is an appearance of Jesus, because then it seems to suggest that Jesus needs help fighting against uh, these other spiritual beings, the prince of Persia. If the person does not change and remains Christ, then there are a few issues here with the complete power that Christ has. 
So it seems like if we say that it's the Christ, then we would have to say that the person in verse 10 is someone being introduced, another messenger. But if the person doesn't change, then uh, we would say that this description of the person in verses four to nine is really just another heavenly messenger. And as is often the case, they reflect the divine. Think of Ezekiel one, they reflect the glory of God. They are still fearful creatures. People still tremble before them. As I've said, angels are not fluffy creatures. They will have your face in the dirt, not wanting to gaze upon them. So it seems like this could be just a heavenly messenger. And this heavenly messenger goes on to explain to Daniel, as we read from verse 12 onwards, that from the first day that Daniel set his heart to understand and humbled himself, his words have been heard. Notice that Daniel's words were heard instantly. There was a delay in the response, but his words were heard instantly. And this is often the case with prayer. And this is so important in this Google age of instant gratification where we fail to wait. Don't be a Google Christian. You know how sometimes when you're talking with a bunch of people and you're chatting about something that you're trying to find out an answer and inevitably someone just says, I'll just Google it and you find it out and you kind of don't want to wait any longer. We can often be like that with prayer where we don't actually wait. We don't wait for the Lord's answer. We just say, I'll just find another way. There is no patience. Don't be a Google Christian. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Your words are heard instantly. There is often a delay, but your words are heard. Make no mistake, God could have answered this prayer instantly. He could have, but the process of waiting actually sanctifies us, which is to say it actually shapes us in a way that forms us more and more like our Savior, who is all patient. The process of waiting promotes a healthy patience that I would say simply whets our appetite even more for when the Lord answers. It is good to wait. And notice in verse 13 that the messenger explains his delay was for 21 days. And this 21 day delay was because this angel was fighting with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. It's interesting to note straight away that we see here that the time at which Daniel is mourning is the exact same time that this heavenly messenger was delayed. It's almost as though as soon as Daniel enters into this season of intentional self-denial to seek the Lord, all of a sudden there is this heavenly warfare going on for that exact period of time. There is a correlation between these two periods. And this is part of the theme being introduced in, these last, in this last section of Daniel. This idea of the spiritual realm of warfare, which lies behind all of the physical. This spiritual realm of warfare, which lies behind all of the physical. That although many people in a Western world have been, as I said, neuralized against this idea of the spiritual realm. The reality is there is this spiritual realm that breaks in and there is a connection between the physical conflict of our day and this spiritual realm. And it seems from this passage here that just as kingdoms are represented here in the physical, there is a representation in the spiritual where we see the king or the prince 
of uh, the kingdom of Persia. For those uh, playing at home as well who were here last week, this is not the same word for prince that we went over in Daniel chapter 9. A different idea here, basically just meaning ruler. The ruler of the kingdom of Persia, which is clearly this spiritual realm. So this brief passage here gives us the behind the scenes look. It peels back the curtains to everything that lies behind the physical conflict of our day, this spiritual realm. And no matter how much we try to suppress the spiritual, it is there. And it's amazing, many of you have come as well um, out to Tuggeranong on Saturdays where we share the gospel with others. And I've spoken to many, many people, and this would be the case in my own time as well, uh, that it's very unusual to come across someone who doesn't believe in some form of a supernatural It's very unusual to come across, even as much as the Western world tries to suppress that and place a dome, it's very unusual for people to actually say, yeah, there's nothing out there. You know, we are just a product of um, a a chemical reaction and even things like love are just sort of a chemical reaction in our mind. Actually, most people will always say, there's got to be something else out there. And this passage is peeling back the curtain for us to say, yes, and there is a correlation between everything that is going on in the physical and this spiritual realm. So for Daniel, in the midst of all of this uncertainty around God's people, remember that he has been displaced. As a teenager, he was taken out of Jerusalem, placed into exile as a captive His hometown was destroyed. Now his people finally have a glimmer of hope as they're heading back and immediately they face opposition. And in the midst of all of this uncertainty, Daniel receives this vision where God interrupts his period of mourning and displays this majestic figure here, which sets everyone trembling as if to say, think of the majesty and might represented in the spiritual realm by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords that will conquer all of the physical. It's meant to demonstrate the utter superiority of the heavenly army over the evil forces against God's people. Remember in 2 Kings 6 where Elisha uh, this is, has his servant and they're faced with an army with the Assyrians coming against them. And Elijah prays uh, that his servant would actually see. And so he says, open his eyes, Lord. And then all of a sudden he sees the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. It's as if to show there's another peeling back of the curtains to show. It doesn't matter the physical conflict. There is this spiritual realm that is much more powerful, like Jesus says, when he's faced with the physical execution. And he says, I could have 12 legions of angels come and destroy you all now. There is a spiritual realm connected to the physical. And it's not like God is having a tug of war with the devil in it. No, he holds Satan on a leash. We get to see the ultimate uh, peeling back in this passage. So the curtains are stripped back. We see that there is a spiritual warfare that lies behind the physical conflict of our day. And as we just finish the passage from verse 15 on uh, to the rest of chapter 10, Daniel um, 
is just naturally zapped of all his strength as this is being revealed to him. Notice that he has no strength. He's begging the person to give him strength. He says, Oh my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. So he is strengthened again and Daniel receives these beautiful words uh, that in a way we receive as well. Oh man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. Isn't it wonderful to know that in the midst of all of our anxiety where we feel zapped of strength, there is a word to us that says, Oh man, greatly loved, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear. And the messenger's last words in chapter 10 is that he is going off. We read in verse 20 to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. And then in verse 21, he finishes by saying, I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except Michael, your prince. So he's going to reveal that all through chapter 11. And he says, and as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Just one final note on that passage there. It's interesting that he finishes uh, in chapter 11, verse 1, by saying, as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now, what happened in the first year of Darius the Mede? That was Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, where he realizes that the exile is coming to an end. He sets his heart to understand and he seeks the Lord. And again, you see from the moment that Daniel sets his heart in chapter 9 in the first year of Darius the Mede, this heavenly messenger is saying, as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, Daniel, while you were praying, I went out to strengthen the hymn as Michael, the archangel, says there's this picture of this battle going on as Daniel goes out to pray. I know it's hard. Often we pray and uh, this happens with me and I, I have a time of prayer and I think it doesn't really feel like I'm awakening a cosmic battle by my prayers. It feels like, you know, there was a bit of a fizzle and that was it and I'll try again later on. Uh, but the reality is that our words are heard. Our words are heard. And there is a connection between all of the physical and this spiritual realm. So I want to finish by just giving three brief applications on spiritual warfare as we think about the themes being introduced here, this peeling back of the curtains and us engaging in spiritual warfare. The first application is that the life of a disciple is warfare. The life of a disciple is warfare. Daniel is going to war. All throughout Daniel, we see the kind of warfare that the Bible calls us to. Daniel is going to war with the sword of the Spirit. He is on the battleground or the front line of prayer. He has the armor of God. Think about it. His hometown has been destroyed. His people have been exiled. Just as the decree goes out, there's immediate opposition. And how does he spend his time intentionally denying himself in order to seek the Lord on behalf of his people? How many other Jewish people do you think in the exile just slipped into a syncretistic lifestyle, accepting all of the comforts of Babylon? How many people in our age... How many professing Christians today simply slip into a comfort-driven life? 
accepting a syncretistic lifestyle of this Western ideology of human flourishing your best life now and try and do that under the guise of Christianity. How many of us want to have our cake and eat it too in terms of all of the goods of the world and following Jesus. Daniel doesn't do that. He is engaging in warfare and the life of a disciple is warfare. Uh, John Piper in his book, Desiring God, he, he talks about this idea and he talks about it in terms of having a wartime walkie-talkie. Disciples having a wartime walkie-talkie or some sort of communication device. And it is set for the follower of Jesus to the frequency of wartime. So you're not going to pick up the football score on it. It's just set for wartime communication. And he says, how many followers of Jesus have this and are trying to just talk about civilian affairs? It'd be like being on the front line of Gallipoli and trying to call up your commander and say, hey, did you catch the score? Did you catch the score the other day? You would never do that. And yet how often do we accept all of the joys of following Jesus, and we try and talk, we try and, as Paul says, engage in civilian affairs rather than pleasing our commanding officer as soldiers of Christ. Too often we miss the fact that Scripture calls us to be soldiers. Too often we miss this where we are called to engage in a type of warfare. And how does the New Testament describe this warfare? Paul says, "...the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh." We don't take up arms, so to speak. We have divine power, rather, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what warfare looks like for the follower of Jesus. Warfare in this 21st century entertainment-driven culture, which, uh, as Neil Postman wrote uh, in the 80s, we are entertaining ourselves to death. Uh, this is the type of environment we're in. So every so warfare in our culture is taking thoughts captive to obey Christ, taking that thought to turn to another pointless YouTube clip captive and investing in prayer or the word, uh, that thought to indulge in a bit of pornography or a bit of gossip or whatever the indulgence may be, taking that captive. Daniel demonstrates this warfare through his undisrupted discipline. And it's so incredibly easy for us to lose the battle before it has begun because of this realm, this secular realm that we live in, where we do not feel the threat of the kingdom of darkness. Imagine how it felt for Daniel. You can, in one sense, see how easy it is to get on your knees and seek the Lord where everything is being destroyed around you. The danger for us is that we don't feel the threat of the kingdom of darkness. In uh, the movie from the 90s, The Usual Suspects, there's this famous line that um, is, I think, borrowed from the themes of C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters, where uh, Kevin Spacey says this line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. That's the threat of our society. We don't feel the threat of the kingdom of darkness. We don't feel this, the threat of the reality of the devil, our adversary, prowling around like a roaring lion waiting to devour someone. No, we just get consumed by online shopping. 
We just get numb to this idea. Perhaps if there was a sense of persecution, we would be driven into it. So don't lose the reality that the life of a disciple is warfare. Second, humble and heightened prayer initiates God's intervention. Humble and heightened prayer initiates God's intervention. From the moment Daniel set his heart to understand and humbled himself, his words were heard. That's what we read here. Now, flip that. In contrast to that, in Isaiah 59, we read, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, that is your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. There is a reality to this. Unrepentant sin blocks God's ears in that sense. Now, of course, we know theologically that for those who are in Christ, our prayers are heard because we are asking them in Jesus' name. But we also cannot ignore the plain truth in Scripture that unrepentant sin creates a barrier. It breaks the sense of fellowship. God actually says again and again, I block my ears to you. I'm not listening to you speaking to his people, Israel, who have abandoned him. And there's an application for us. Unrepentant sin creates a barrier. Whereas humble prayer opens a door. Humble and heightened prayer initiates God's intervention. Now, theologically, we know we don't initiate anything with God. He is the one who initiates. But let's just speak of it from our perspective. The reality of what we see is that humble and heightened prayer initiates things from God's perspective. You might even say that it becomes the evidence that God is actually moving you to press into him. So we must not rob ourselves of the clear reality that God honors discipline in our time of prayer. Time and time again, we see in Daniel, God interrupts his discipline by answering, by giving him a vision, by speaking to him. It's not like we read in Daniel that Daniel's uh, by the river Tigris, Um, having a vacation, sipping mimosas, and all of a sudden God reveals himself to him. No, he's actually in this form of just like intentional discipline. He's mourning here. He's fasting. Humble and heightened prayer initiates God's intervention. In Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism, it's a wonderful book if you get the chance to read it. It details all of the good and bad of the great awakenings in 18th century USA, where uh, the country was completely transformed in many areas. And he says uh, prayer was central to much of the revival. And he gives accounts from uh, firsthand accounts from pastors there. Here's one that describes what was happening. Uh, There was a remarkable revival of religion in the town of Petersburg, and many of the inhabitants were savingly converted. And the old Christians greatly revived. That town never witnessed before or since such wonderful displays of the presence and love of God in the salvation of immortal souls. And then he goes on to talk about the evidence of this. He says, here's how we know that revival was actually breaking out. Prayer meetings were frequently held both in the town and in the country, and souls were frequently converted at those meetings, even when there was no preacher present. How wonderful. You don't even need a preacher at times. 
even when there was no preacher present. For the prayers and exhortations of the members were greatly owned of the Lord. Imagine that, just a time of prayer and all of a sudden people are being brought in and converted. When revival broke out in the second great awakening, prayer was central. And notice another description that is given of what was happening. This person says, the frivolities and amusements once so prevalent were all abandoned and gave place to singing, serious conversation and prayer meetings. That's what happened. The frivolities and amusements of life were abandoned and what was replaced? Singing, serious conversations and prayer meetings. Ian Murray goes on to say, one thing that can be said with certainty about the 18th century before any general indications of a new era were to be seen is that there was a growing concern amongst Christians to pray. There was a growing concern amongst Christians to pray. Prayer is God's means for giving us what he promises so that as we ask them of him, he may give them to us and we glorify him. Call on me on the day, call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. There's the Lord's promise. Humble prayer initiates God's intervention. Finally, just the last thing as we engage in spiritual warfare. If you have your Bibles, just turn to the very end of chapter 12. If we jump all the way to the end of this, remembering that these chapters will be taken together. The final message uh, from this man clothed in linen, notice in verse 13. Um, it's still the man clothed in linen talking. We read that in verse 7. And in verse 13, we read his final instruction. But go your way till the end. This is him talking to Daniel. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. This means a designated place, your allotted place. There's a reserved place. What is the foundation and fuel for our warfare? the assurance that we have that Christ is able to bring us to completion, that there is a reserved place, like Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Our assurance is based on the fact that he has clung to us. So like Paul says, we press on to take hold of that for which he has taken a hold of us. So the final comfort given to Daniel after all of this, and he's been absolutely wrecked by visions. And the final comfort given to Daniel is you will rest and you will stand in your allotted place. This is an allusion to the resurrection because just before this, it talks about uh, being um, people being uh, raised, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It talks about uh, going to sleep and then rising as an illusion of the resurrection. Here, the comfort to Daniel is you will rest and then you will stand in your allotted place. Daniel's comfort is ultimately that through all of the difficulties, through all of the challenges and trials, there is an allotment, there is an inheritance, there is a reserved place. You imagine when you go to a wedding and there is your name on the table. Uh, it's there waiting at the marriage supper of the lamb. There is a reserved place. This is the comfort given to Daniel. You wait, you will rest, and then you will stand in your designated 
place. There is a city that is coming that for those who have trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ, there is a name written in that book that will never be blotted out. And the fact that we have assurance doesn't lead us to complacency. Rather, it compels us to persevere. It compels us to press on deeper because there is an inheritance waiting. There is a reserved place. We will face spiritual warfare uh, when Paul talks about those who desire to live a godly life. They will face persecution or when, we, when he says through many tribulations must we enter the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't just saying that for a few people. Uh, this is for all followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, there will be a battle. And our comfort is knowing that there is Someone who intercedes for us. There is a mediator. There is a comforter. There is someone who will bring us to completion. There is a designated place. There is a reserved seat. And our life now through all of the trials is working toward that end so that we can say the sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us.